0: Well, good afternoon and welcome to your DIY Health Radio here on the Spreaker Radio Network. I'm your host, Sergeant Jim Ram, retired. You can call me Sarge, and we're also free... uh, uh, simulcasting on free conference call it is monday december 18th 2023 and this program is meant to provide natural healing information only and is in no way meant to replace the advice of a competent medical professional assuming you can find one i search for and present to my listeners natural modalities that simply assist and augment the body's ability to heal itself and uh, with that in mind, we encourage you to go check out the website, YourDIYHealth. That's uh, Y-O-U-R-D-I-Y, like do-it-yourself, health, H-E-A-L-T-H, YourDIYHealth.com. Yes, that's YourDIYHealth.com. And all the products we talk about are there, including the, uh, tech, the terahertz frequency devices, which are featured prominently at the top of the homepage. We've got the uh, old standbys, the care devices and the uh, great products they give uh, fantastic results and uh, reasonably priced at least the uh, <laughs> the bottom line ones are but um, we also have the new kid on the block the Olilife, life uh, cell essentials wand and p90 the p90 is my new all-time favorite um, <laughs> it is an amazing thing it does both terahertz frequencies and pulsed electromagnetic frequencies and the it's a foot device that you just turn it on put your feet on it and sit there for 30 minutes and it radiates up through your body hitting everything and i'll tell you what i've had better results with that little thing than all the top end stuff from uh, that i have with itera care over the last year and uh, it's just been amazing so i encourage you to check it out and it's reasonably priced as well it's only a little over a thousand or eleven hundred dollars i think right now takes about a week to receive it. Um, they are in pre-launch here in the U.S. Uh, they've been going for a couple of years in different parts of the world, but in the U.S. of A., they've only been here for several months, and uh, they're going to go live after the first of the year. And um, I'll tell you what, I've heard all kinds of things. People above me badmouth them and that kind of stuff, but I haven't found anyone badmouthing them who has actually taken the time to buy one and check it out. So I did, and the bad-mouthing is all baloney. I uh, was totally amazed when I got mine and started using it, and things that I have been dealing with for quite some time, trying to uh, use the iTeraCare stuff to get rid of, and it didn't touch it. But this device really, really did the job. And, of course, you don't have to have any upper body flexibility or anything like that. You don't have to, you know take time to wand all over the place you just sit there with your feet on it read a book watch tv take a nap whatever and it does its thing and i'll tell you what the results are amazing Um, so i encourage you to check it out and if you have any questions hit the contact me button it's been updated so uh, emails will now go through (laughs) and um, had a gentleman from germany last week trying to get a hold of me and every time he sent an email it would get hung up because it has to go through the the server of the software company that i used to put the program together and they're not supporting email anymore apparently so they just sort of go into a black hole so i put a direct link to my email and a functioning phone number and uh, so now calls and messages email messages will get through to me and we'll get back with you as quick as we can and help you get your questions answered and get you on the right track all righty then while you're on the main website, be sure to hit the radio shows tab. And at the top of the page is the link to the archive page set up through castbox.fm. And right below that is the rumble button that, um, you know, takes you right to the rumble page, of course. And we encourage you to do that. Uh, join or follow the page, uh, like some of the videos, and um, that will help us get the their algorithm functioning. So it's pushing it out to more people. And uh, then more people find out how they can restore their health naturally using science-based, clinically verified medical nutrition and other natural modalities and avoid dangerous drugs, surgery, vaccines, and all that kind of junk and really uh, get their life on the right track. So check that out. And then uh, if you scroll down a little further, you'll see the information on the shows we do, when they're on and how you listen. And at the bottom of the page is the link to the Facebook page set up for the show, as well as the Telegram channel. Now keep in mind the topics discussed and opinions mentioned on this show are those of the host and or guests and don't necessarily represent the opinions of the Spreaker Radio Network, free conference call, rumble, any of the other platforms we're on, or any of the alphabet agencies out there listening in. Nothing we say in this show should be construed as an attempt to diagnose, treat, or cure any kind of a health or wealth issue. It's all here for your education and entertainment purposes only. So that as a responsible adult, you can use this show as a jumping off point to do your own research and due diligence to make sure that what you're doing and what you're trying is right for you. Okay, that being said, um, John uh, contacted me this morning, said that he is uh, traveling on his way home from somewhere in uh, California. So he will be not be joining us today. So I'm just trying to figure out what we're going to do. And a uh, couple of the things I want to talk about is a couple of new books I just got. Um, there was a video I played last week that had a uh, segment in it by Dr. Uh, Peter Bregan, M.D., who is a um, psychiatrist, I believe, and in during his psychiatric. Uh, training and when he was in uh, uh, actually in his uh, early years in the medical training he was at a uh, and this was in the early 50s he was at a hospital that did a lot of uh, frontal lobotomies and chemical lobotomies and things like that and uh, gave quite graphic descriptions of what these people were experiencing enough so much that when he mentioned his book that he had put out called COVID-19 and the global predators we are prey I had to buy a copy and um the neat thing is the hard copy was only I think 9.99 and the Kindle version or the e-reader version was only 2.99 so I got both of them and I was quite amazed I thought it was going to be a reg- relatively small book but, uh, when I received the hard copy, um, this thing has 651 numbered pages <laughs> and a lot of, he said over, I think a thousand different, uh, references and that kind of thing. But, um, it's a, uh, quite extensive book and unfortunately Uh, No pictures, all print, but um, there's a lot of stuff in here, and uh, I've uh, gotten started on it, and what I've read so far has been relatively interesting, and uh, well worth, you know, for for 10 bucks, I mean, that's the buy of the year, I think. Uh, Again, that's COVID-19 and the global predators, we are the prey, with introductions by leading COVID-19 physicians, Dr. Peter McCulloch. Elizabeth Lee Vla- uh, Vliet and Vladimir Zelenko. And it's written by Peter R. Bregan, M.D., and Ginger Ross Bregan. I believe that's his wife. And I was at my buddy's house on Friday, and uh, he had just uh, received a couple of books, one that I've had for quite some time, What Really Makes You Ill, uh, which is another one that really attacks the germ theory. And it's another big, thick one. Uh, and then there's another one that's called, trust me, I am not a doctor, an uncontrolled study of modern medicine by Tracy Northern. And I had, uh, played a video. It was a four part, uh, thing. It was only about 10 minutes long total, um, a week or so ago. And, um, she did an excellent job of attacking the so-called germ theory. And I've made it to, uh, I think, chapter three or four. Um, and it's turning out to be something quite interesting, too. And the best part, the chapters are relatively short. Um, but she's got some interesting things in here. The first one is called Modern Medicine. is not a science. It's a religion. And I'm inclined to agree with her. She produced a very interesting um, graphic, um kind of small and am see if i can read it here and this is by dr paul Offit, who is one of the uh, big childhood vaccine apologists i believe that science should be accepted without question i'm a doctor i am a scientific expert i decide what science is you on the other hand are only a parent if you don't respect my scientific and medical credentials or you refuse to follow my advice, I think the state should take your children from you. Paul Offit. And that's a statement he made on CNN. What a classy a schmuck. Um, and then there's a thing. there. They have a section where they talk about uh, the so-called Spanish flu. Was that a blueprint for 2020 <laughs> and uh rather interesting stuff in there um let's see here this is an interesting statement by a doctor i think it was dr gates uh, no relationship to a wild bill that i know of because this was back um, during or after the uh, so-called spanish flu autopsies after the great war proved that the 1918 flu was not a flu at all it was caused by random dosages of an experimental bacterial meningitis vaccine which to this day mimics flu-like symptoms the massive multiple assaults with additional vaccines on the unprepared immune system of soldiers and civilians created a killing field those that were not vaccinated were not affected imagine that and that's what we've heard uh, from some of the other uh, videos i've played in the past where they talked about the uh, uh, husband and wife team of doctors who were not vaccinated and their children were not vaccinated and they spent virtually every day in the homes of people suffering from the so-called spanish flu taking care of them, treating them, keeping them comfortable, that kind of thing. And they never got sick, nor did they ever bring it home and get any of their children sick. And that was one of the things that was the big um, deal during this whole thing and the experiments that were done trying to uh, infect so-called healthy people, just symptom-free people, um, by having them sit in close proximity to those who were sick uh, having bodily fluids not you know uh, saliva blood uh, taken from ill people and injected into healthy people and not once did anybody get sick imagine that so those are the things that um, kind of make you go hmm <laughs> but anyway a couple of if you're a reading type person and uh for years i didn't do a lot of reading but i'll tell you what since all of this stuff has started up i can't get my i can't get my hands on enough information dealing with what's being done to us and i've read i think 14 or 15 16 something like that covid books so far um including ones on the jabs and all that kind of junk um some small some big and um working on the ones but along with the, uh, the so-called jabs and the flu and everything and the COVID itself, dealing with the uh, alleged germ theory. And the more I get into that, the more it becomes quite obvious to me that the germ theory is just that. It's an unproven theory. And you don't get sick by being as exposed to somebody who was, uh, you know, ill. You know, my wife was having a hissy fit yesterday because one of the women at church, um, brought her daughter to church who, uh, and their younger daughter had uh, just been taken by squad to the children, to children's hospital for suspected either RSV or COVID. She was exposed to her. And then she brings her to church to expose everybody else. I said, don't worry about it. People don't get sick from being around someone else that's sick period course you know being wrapped around the allopathic uh theory of medicine for the last 40 plus years uh it was like uh poking a bear <laughs> but uh, you know i just can't help it <laughs> when something like that happens i gotta say something but uh it's and there's right now there's something going around you know you've been you've been listening to me in the last week or so with my funky voice and all that and i think it's pretty much back to semi-abnormal um but i think it was last wednesday or wednesday my wife came home and she said i feel like i've been run over by a truck and you know the first thing it would go through people's minds oh you got that from me or you got it from somebody at work i said i think there's some kind of thing that they're putting into the chemtrails that they're spraying on us another toxin and people are getting that stuff up their snouts and it's causing some issues um it from what i can tell you know you have uh, kind of flu-like symptoms for maybe 24 hours we feel all achy and crappy and everything but after that it sort of passes and then it's more a uh, just a sinus issue for most people and um you know for me it affected my voice more than anything because i was i had one day where i felt kind of weird i think it was last monday and uh nothing bad and i didn't have any problems it didn't stop me from doing anything that i was normally doing um just felt a little off kind of thing but i just kept doing the stuff i normally do just did more of it and uh that passed and you know like i said the only thing i've had real issue with was my voice and uh I haven't had any problems sleeping at night from, you know, congestion or anything like that. Um, everything's good. And, you know, it is what it is. But um, just don't buy in, especially this time of year. Um, so many people out there are, oh, you know, I don't, don't want to shake your hand. I might get something from you or I don't want to give something to you or whatever. You ain't going to. It's all two big things, toxins and psychological. I still honestly believe a huge part of it is in your head. And you've been programmed over years and years and years and years to believe that, um, somebody's sick and you're near them. So you're going to get sick and lo and behold, you get sick and you think that it was something they gave you some little wee beastie that you can't even see. And first it was bacteria, then they start seeing bacteria and there was, you know, there, you know, you had the, the pastor and, uh, Jenner's, you know, saying it was bugs because, Hey, the biggest thing. And that's one of the big things I see in all these books, a recurring theme is the, the one big thing that allopathic medicine has to promote its quackery is fear. They get you afraid of these little things that you can't see. So afraid, in fact, that you will get sick just because you think you've been exposed to one of those little things that you can't see. And that's the mind, the psychosomatic action. And the mind is extremely powerful. You talk to any psychologist, psychiatrist, if you can find one that's worth talking to and get past all their other mumbo-jumbo and ask them how powerful the mind is. And they'll say it's the most powerful force on the, powerful force on the face of the planet in many cases. Um, that's why propaganda works as well as it does. That's why we've been wrapped around the finger of allopathic medicine our entire lives. Because they have programmed everybody out there, to believe that if you get exposed to this stuff and you're around somebody that's sick, you're going to get sick. And, man, I'll tell you what, so you got to have their wonderful witchcraft and sorcery, their little drugs and their vaccines and all this other stuff to protect you. Heaven forbid you should use what God gave you, (laughs) your own body, to take care of your own body and good, clean food, and that kind of stuff, if you can find it. (laughs) But they just, uh, they work with fear. You know, when you get a cancer diagnosis, what do you hear? If you don't do what I say, you're going to die. And again, studies have shown that if you do absolutely nothing, when you get diagnosed with cancer, on average, you're going to live 12 years. Unless you've been jabbed and then it's turbo cancer. That's a different story. All bets are off. But uh, prior to COVID anyway, normally if you were diagnosed and did nothing, you had 12 years to live. And uh, But if you did what the doctor said, if you were lucky, you might make it five. And I don't know about new math, but you know the math I was taught, 12 years is better than five years uh, to me. And then there are the people that say, thanks for the diagnosis, doc. I got it from here. And they go out and they'll utilize whether it's juicing or um, oxygen therapy or colloidal silver or C60 or nutrition or any number of natural holistic things. And in no time at all, 60 90 days, their cancer's gone and they live a healthy, happy life for years and years and years, many times outliving the doctor that diagnosed them. Don't fall into the fear, don't get hooked on that stuff. And again, this is where reading can be your best friend. And it's best to do it before you get diagnosed, (laughs) as opposed to scrambling afterwards. Now, if you're afraid of cancer, start looking at uh, all the books you can on natural cancer remedies. Because there's bunches of them out there. Everything from, oh goodness, apricot seeds to urine and everything in between didn't quite make it a to z but a to u <laughs> that's pretty close but um the worst thing you can do if you're diagnosed with any kind of a chronic health issue which cancer is it's a nutritional deficiency disease is go to an md because they are clueless you know they talk all the fancy words and they got all that good stuff, and you know they can uh, they can really dazzle you with their uh, verbiage. But look at their track record. You know I want to talk to ten of your patients who have received the treatment you're recommending for me who are still alive uh, over ten years. Good luck and ask them what their experience was oh man that chemo saved my life but it made me sick as a dog you know that kind of junk See, so you just find some you know and you know i want not just a second opinion i want a third and a fourth and track down naturopaths traditional chinese practitioners other people You might be doing yourself a huge favor. Look at things like Gerson therapy. You know, for years and years, I was a big proponent of Gerson therapy. What the big problem is, is number one, most people can't afford to go to um, Tijuana for two weeks or longer. Not just themselves, but someone their their caretaker, because their process is so in depth and massive. That most cancer patients just cannot, they don't have the strength and the ability to do everything that their system requires. Especially when, and the last I checked, and this is 20 years ago, I think it was $11,000 for two people to go to their Gerson institute in tijuana for two weeks and that did not include the norwalk juicer which at the time was about 2500 bucks and all the other things when people have invested as little as you know 180 dollars for three bottles of c60 and gotten rid of their cancer <laughs> or you know a little bit more, but still less than a grand in um, longevity products and gotten rid of their cancer. But the one thing to keep in mind when when you're doing something like this is you have to stop doing the things that are causing the cancer in the first place. And that's where a lot of people have a a major problem. A good example is um, Joe Tippin's. We've talked about him on this show a lot where he was diagnosed with um, small cell lung cancer, which is a very, very aggressive type of cancer, kills most people. And he openly admits he calls himself a foodie. He likes to eat what he likes to eat. He didn't change his diet in one bit and still using nothing more. Than fembendazole dog warmer and uh i think vitamin e and uh, cbd oil i think was pretty much what his uh, regimen was he got rid of his cancer the thing is unless he keeps doing that constantly or changes his habits which he doesn't do you know he kept eating the same kind of stuff so if he's got rid of his cancer stopped doing the fenbendazole and the other things and went back to living the way he had been guess what chances are it's going to come back on him if you always do what you've always done you'll always get what you always got and that's one of the biggest mistakes people make whether it's just a simple diet program or a uh, uh something more in-depth, like uh, I got cancer, what do I do to get rid of it? They don't think about the fact that what did I do that got me the cancer in the first place? They act like they're innocent, and they were just sitting there minding their own business, and the cancer bug came along and bit them. As opposed to, what was I putting into my system to mess it up that it became cancerous? And in Joe Tippin's case, chances are it was a lot of the foods he ate. Fried foods, oils, wheat, barley, rye, oats, corn, soy, skins of baked potatoes, sweet potatoes and yams, carbonated beverages with meals, all the bad foods. And he wants to keep doing those things and think that something's going to be different now. Like Einstein said, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results, height of insanity. And therein lies the problem. The vast majority of people who come down with these things do so because of their own lifestyle, choices they've made, or in the cases of children, choices the parents made. Like, what am I going to feed my child? What am I going to have injected into my child? I guarantee you, I don't have any scientific evidence to back this up, but I guarantee you, every single kid in the cancer hospitals, whether it's children's hospitals or um the ones that danny thomas put out whatever that thing is um i guarantee you every kid there is totally up to date on their childhood vaccines it's probably required just to be able to go to those places oh you got to be up to date on your vaccines or we won't let you in you might make somebody sick (laughs) oh my goodness but And when you have stuff in those vaccines that is knowingly cancerous and carcinogenic, gee, you know, you're injecting your kids with this stuff, and then you wonder why he came down with some kind of really weird childhood cancer. Well, duh, maybe you should read those package inserts. Stop listening to the, the guy that's making money off you to, you know, stick that stuff in your kids. Because they're making a boatload to propagandize you and make sure your child is on the list of the injected. But I guarantee you, no doubt my mind, every single kid in these hospitals are all up to date on their shots. And I wonder if anybody's ever tried to talk to these parents. Says, Junior up to date on his, oh yeah, we make sure he gets everything. You ever read the vaccine inserts you know virtually every single one of those jabs pumped into your kid has stuff in it that causes cancer and on top of that most of the food that you pump down his throat has stuff in it that causes cancer and yet you're sitting here scratching your head wondering why your child got cancer hmm. you yeah. know There's recipes. You read a recipe book, if you do this, this, and this, and this, you'll get this. Well, guess what? If you take childhood vaccines and you eat all the Franken foods that are out there, that's a recipe for cancer, among other things. You know, early onset uh, type 2 diabetes, which never used to be. It was called type 2 adult onset because you never saw it in people until they were 40 or 50 or more. Now you got eight and ten-year-olds with type two diabetes. because all the crap they're eating. Kids today, under the age of twenty, probably never had real food in their whole life. It's all been processed. It's all been Franken food, unless they live out in the middle of nowhere, uh, and with parents that have a little bit more sense. But uh, you yeah. know. Just a few thoughts at the beginning of things here. Um, The whole idea is to think about what you're doing and whether it's healthy or not healthy. And if it's not, you know, change it. If you want to make some changes in your life, you got to make some changes in your life. Simple as that. Feel free anytime, jump in with questions or comments. Uh, Let's see here. The Great Taking How They Plan to Steal Everything from Everyone. <laughs> Supply Chain Chaos. Key global electrical products supplier announces a 20 week delay for many components. Oh, goody. It's starting again. Yep. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Have you seen The Great Taking?
0: No, not yet.
1: Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. I've, uh, I've watched it a couple of times, and it's sort of funny, you know, when I brought up this Thursday on uh, Lee Prost's um, treatise on the house that nobody lives in, this is exactly how they got to this whole thing, and it lays it out how the public and private were mixed together and were supposed to be protected by the constitution <laughs> and how we fell out of that especially with the 14th amendment and go into what we have today it's uh it's pretty he you know he if you go through that video he basically he brings it back to the sixties and the beginning of the bank, which would have been about 1913. Right. Well, Prost brings it back to the articles, confederation, the constitution, the 14th amendment, and then the capstone, the taking of the gold
2: <laughs> it's
0: worth reading. Oh man, that's a trip. Yeah, it's uh it's getting interesting.
1: Oh. Well, basically, he's saying that all securities for uh, for 400 years were your private property, and they snuck into every state and changed the commercial laws, where that's no longer the case anymore. Hmm. It's the one that controls that security that's the owner. Yeah, boy. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So pension funds, people who think they're safe, their mm-hmm. pension funds and everything, right, are going to get probably take an eighty percent hit oh, boy. anyway it's worth yeah. it's well worth seeing it's a and the and the best uh, i don't know which one you have it's the the children's or United children's defense fund or whatever that one plays really well a lot of other ones are corrupted, but that's where the he, he when he's speaking in the The documentary. He he sends you to that site to get the original, and because I've gotten all different kinds of ones, and they just don't play properly. They quit. They don't restart. um, But that one is real easy to turn on and off, and um, and it's clear. It it really works well.
0: Cool. Um, Yeah, I'm looking at the Great Taking website right now. And, uh, oh, there's the book just downloaded that. Um, hmm. let's see here and he
1: feels they're very close to pulling the trigger. He says they've been really working on this thing for like 10 years. They're getting to and the that point where they're going to have to, um, and the only, the only way you'll be able to get anything back according to him is they want you to get your app and then ask them for some substance to survive Hmm. sounds a little like revelations
0: (laughs) I've got the great taking documentary here from the great taking website linked to rumble let's see yeah
1: on Rumble, you'll have a choice, maybe, on whether you get the one from um, the Children's Defense Fund or whatever it is. I'm not saying that exactly right. It's like United Children's Defense Fund or something like that. Hmm. That's the best
2: copy.
0: Let's see here
1: see if I can
2: it look. Just at it just came
0: straight is. to it. Um, well, we'll play a little of it here and see what happens. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, it's children's health defense.
3: My name is David Webb. I live in Stockholm, Sweden. I'm on a small farm here. It's important to understand I am not giving financial advice. The book I've done has a greater purpose than that. I am not active in the markets. I'm not short the market. I am in things like farmland. I was managing public equities and ultimately hedge funds through the aftermath of the Asian financial crisis, the lead up to the dot-com bubble and bust. And I noticed that fund flows were very large relative to the size of the U.S economy, for example, or the global economy. So I started to look at the scale of money creation by the Federal Reserve, and I developed the insight that the Fed was actually influencing the financial markets, which no one would be surprised at today. But at that time, it was considered conspiracy theory, even by my partners. This was something I could not talk to people about, but I began studying it myself. And I saw that in individual weeks, the scale of new money created was on the order of 1% of US GDP or more. Now, what that meant, given that the US economy was growing at maybe three or 4% in a good year, to have money creation on that scale in a single week It meant that the money creation was far outstripping any real economic growth. So the transmission mechanism for money creation into real economic activity was breaking down. This is when I started becoming concerned (laughs) and started following this closely. And it actually developed into a way for me to navigate the markets. So I applied it and I managed to protect people who I was responsible to as my clients through the dot-com bubble and bust and did very well through that period, armed with this understanding. But the bigger understanding was that the velocity of money was collapsing. And I knew at that time, this is over 20 years ago, that we were headed into something like the time that the world experienced through the period of the Great Wars and the Great Depression because this kind of velocity of money was occurring at that time. So I went into this deeply and studied everything that was happening leading into the 20th century, saw that this provided the best analogous period for understanding what we were entering then. So I have followed this very closely. I have applied it in my work in what I was doing. So I had an effective understanding of it. The important thing to understand now is that the velocity of money, which is the relationship between economic growth and money, or money creation, money supply, has broken down and is now at a lower level velocity of money than it was at any point during the Great Depression and the World Wars. So I believe that this is actually the profound underlying reason for the many things that we are seeing geopolitically. I grew up in a family of medical people and engineers. They were not involved in high finance. As a boy, I went through basically the beginning of the industrial collapse of Cleveland. They say that people strive to get control over what has hurt them and I grew up with a real need to understand what was destroying us because it deeply affected my family, which had been very happy (laughs) prior to this, a happy, benevolent family, and it literally destroyed the place where I grew up. So I decided to study business and finance. This was something my father did not want me to do. He thought I should be an engineer. And when I was younger, I thought I would have been a medical doctor, but this became the pressing thing for me to understand. So I studied finance and computer science. I got a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. I had no one to guide me. I just started looking at the Wall Street Journal And I noticed these tombstones, which announced the big mergers and acquisitions deals or financing, that all these firms were in New York. So I decided at a young age, I needed to go to New York. And I got a job with a computer services firm. I could program. I had studied systems analysis and finance. So in this first year as a young guy, I went into perhaps literally every financial firm in New York City with the sales teams. So that helps a person, I think, to begin to understand things on an intuitive level just by seeing things. It's not so intimidating once you've been into these places. Things are intimidating if you've never encountered them. So that all happened in my first year. And then one of my clients, which was a mergers and acquisitions group, There, two analysts were leaving. One was going to Harvard Business School, the other was going to the London office, and the sales guy that I worked with on that account came back and told me that they needed someone with a background in finance and computers, and I realized at that time that was gonna be me. So I talked with my wife about it. I showed up at this office so early, the next day, nobody was there. I had to wait about an hour for people to start coming in and they were shocked that I thought that I had any business suggesting that I could work there. (laughs) They proceeded to put me through a shocking, stressful morning. I was ushered into one of the senior vice presidents who listened to what I had to say and then he said, well, you better be sure you want to do this because if you up, you're gone. By the time I left, I thought maybe this wasn't such a good idea. I probably shouldn't have bothered. You know, sure enough, they called back. They needed me because I knew how to do things. So I worked in M&A mergers and acquisitions for five years in this firm. It was working literally around the clock, sometimes for days with no sleep or maybe just lying on the office floor for half an hour to get up and continue. So I learned to deal with a lot of stress with little sleep through this period of time. And then I managed to move to what was then the biggest private equity firm in the world by an order of magnitude i chose to go there rather than stay i had another offer from a mergers and acquisitions group at lf rothschild that would have been for about twice the compensation but i sensed that there was going to be a crash of some kind and a month later was black monday october of 87 and lf rothschild was wiped out lost all of its capital. I really went to this private equity firm because when you're doing M&A, it's basically being a glorified salesman. You're an agent. When you're in the shoes of the private equity investment firm, you are the principal. It's a different kind of due diligence and analysis. And I was there for three years, but it was very intensive, three years. And shortly after I had started with the firm, I ended up running that Acquisition of this long-distance telephone company I handled all of it because the partner on the deal had difficulty with stress and he literally went home and stayed in bed for six months I handled all the due diligence which was very complicated and the financing and it ended up being the largest capital gain in the history of the firm but it was very stressful for my family because once again I was working around the clock. I would get up to negotiations on Saturday morning, late into three in the morning, Saturday night, sleep for a few hours, start again on Sunday morning. This went on for nine months. When it was over, it took a few months, but my wife eventually said to me, you know, if I knew our life was going to be like this, I wouldn't have signed up for it. And that just crushed me. I got out a road atlas of the US. We went through it page by page and just thought about where could we go. Where could we be happy? I couldn't stay in that. There was a possibility I would go to their London office, but I knew that would even be more intense. It would just be more of the same. Once I've done something, I don't need to keep doing it. I learn what I have to learn from it. I think I am different than other people in this financial world because I actually don't care about the money. That is not why I'm doing it. That should just kind of fall out of what you're doing. And you don't need a lot of it. There's no reason that you need more and more and more. I was always driven by understanding things. And that actually gave me an advantage. I understood things that other people didn't. So ultimately, we just decided to go back to Cleveland where I grew up and we bought a house that was within the sound of the church bells where my grandfather's house was. My memory from Sundays when my dad would take us to grandpa's house. So it was really going home to try to make things sane but the intensity returned. Again, as I got into managing in the public markets, I had this insight that the public markets were even less efficient than the private markets because you had these big fund flows that were pushing things way up beyond where a negotiated deal would ever be done and driving prices down below where it would be done. So you got better opportunities both buy and sell things. I ended up ultimately running this hedge fund strategy that I created. So I designed the trading desk, I trained the people, developed. This team trading strategy through the dot-com bubble and the bust. We were typically in three to four hundred positions at the same time. I had developed a strategy to be short the market using hundreds of positions so that all these crazy dot-com stocks, no one position could kill us. But with all of these positions, we had a kind of visibility into the market and the fundamental flows and what was happening we were doing exceptionally well people couldn't figure out how we were doing so well so we had these consultants coming from literally all over the world flying into cleveland and coming to the office the macro thing i was looking at was this rate of money growth it's always growing whether it was accelerating or decelerating. And I knew we had maybe a day or two lead time, once I saw the figures, to get positioned ahead of the market rolling over or the market accelerating upwards. And other people didn't understand this. Even if I explained it to them, they didn't want to hear about it. They didn't know how to apply it. It was like that. In addition to that, I've always operated with a mental model of what is happening in the world. And I suppose I'm different than other people in that the things I pay attention to is what does not fit my model. is what can kill you. So I pay attention to what does not make sense to me, what does not fit. You have to drop everything. Imagine you're in a highly leveraged position with hundreds of positions. When something comes up that does not fit, you pay attention to that immediately. So the trading room was a newsroom, a research operation. So we paid attention to things second by second, and we would dig into things that did not makes sense so through this period of time I also started changing I think as a person (laughs) because I was seeing things that were not in the narrative the news narrative that people were accepting about what was happening so I knew that economic data series were being changed this is after September 11th as well as all the disconnects around September 11th itself So it was the beginnings of my becoming a kind of activist, although I didn't know it. I wrote quarterly letters to my clients, so I assembled things on my desk. They would accumulate. And I eventually had something like a thick telephone book of just the things that I knew and had documented that did not conform with the accepted narrative that people were being shown through the media. And I then thinned this down to a thick telephone book and literally started going door to door to my neighbors. And what I was doing was I was seeing how I could get through to people. How could I explain this? And it's difficult. Basically, it doesn't work. I decided that maybe my neighbors were too well off to be able to hear about this. So I actually went out to a poor area and a guy was sitting on his front porch and he was interested in what I was doing because I was still in a business suit. I explained it to him and he just said, good luck, man, in this voice of someone who really knew already and had a kind of resignation that there wasn't much you could do about it. So it's been a long journey for me, trying to expose things. I was expecting that there were going to be large-scale insolvencies after the housing bubble. I was aware of what happened during the housing bubble and how that was engineered. In 2003, I met with George Soros. I showed him a chart of the growth in asset-backed securities, and I told him that this would be the basis of the next bubble and collapse and he said to me, you're crazy. So he either did not know that or he did not want to acknowledge it at that time in 2003. So what was happening was tremendous growth in the derivatives complex. So I started becoming concerned about derivatives in the very early 2000s in the aftermath of the dot-com bubble. At that time, the derivatives complex was about twice global GDP. By 2007, it was 10 times global GDP. That growth in maybe five or six years. So the financialization was outstripping any real thing on earth already at that point. And this growth in asset-backed securities, what was happening was that the process of doing any credit underwriting, the moorings had been slipped and this was done by design. Prior to this, banks would do credit underwriting, meaning they would want to get repaid for money they had loaned, so they would do some analysis of whether the borrower could repay it. But during this period of time, the banking industry went to securitization of loans. So it became a business of originating loans without any concern as to whether they could be repaid the loans were all packaged up whether they were AAA loans or subprime loans or boat loans or car loans anything these pools were stratified now if you think of it you had a top 20 percent the next 20 percent and so on down to the bottom and the idea was that any defaults would hit the bottom rated tranche first so for the defaults in that pool to reach the top of the pool the top 20% you'd have to blow through 80% of all the capital in the pool so the top was rated AAA just structurally they could do that the problem was no one wanted to buy the lower rated tranches so they then used an aspect of the derivatives market the credit default obligation CDO to buy the default protection for the lower-rated tranches. Then they could sell the entire pool as AAA. So this was done through, as Greenspan called it, the miracles of modern finance. And he said, presumably the risk will be borne by those best able to bear that risk at the time. So because it could all be sold as AAA and the yields were better than treasuries and the Fed was creating so much liquidity, These pools were then sold 10 times over on a modeled synthetic basis, also in the derivatives market. And so while the banks knew that they did not want to eat their own cooking, the stuff that they had originated, they were buying The assets, this is the nature of a bubble. The people that know it's a fraud are still consuming the stuff that is being created through the same process. So the asset side of the balance sheets of banks were these securities that were being created through the same process. It reached a point where credit default obligations alone were about 10% of the derivatives complex. By the time the great financial crisis kicked off in 2008, Aid in 2009, 10%. So credit default obligations alone were the size of the global economy. Now, I wondered, who's signing up to take that default risk? In the early stages, people were saying, well, the problem here is maybe in the hundreds of billions. They were off by an order of magnitude. It was in the tens of trillions. So as the Fed were injecting all of this created money into the banks, It eventually became clear that the default risk had been taken by hedge fund subsidiaries within the banks themselves. So they enabled this whole thing by creating the entities within the banks that would take the other side of the default risk. And then when the collapse occurred, they were given the money to paper over that loss. The Fed has murky powers that people don't know about until they decide to make it visible. One of their powers is to create entities out of nothing. You just create a limited liability company and then the Fed can loan money, create money and put it into that entity. It's completely off balance sheet it doesn't have to be disclosed anywhere but in this case they did they created something called maiden lane which is a street i sometimes walk down in this other district of manhattan and the financial district so maiden lane was extended this created money to buy these problematic positions out of the banks take them off the hands of the banks And there was so much of this problematic stuff that they then created a maiden lane two and a maiden lane three. And who knows what else was created that we were not told about. So in 2008, I noticed the first failure of a broker-dealer. So I was expecting there to be a lot of insolvencies I was paying attention. And the thing that shocked me was that the client accounts in this broker dealer were encumbered in the bankruptcy estate of the broker that never could have happened before. In all of the history of securities, they were personal property. And if the broker failed, you would say, I'm sorry, you're out of business. Here's where you can transfer my assets. That did not happen in this case. So I started digging into what could possibly have changed and this was as serious as a heart attack given that we were going into this meltdown at that time. That's when I discovered it had been done through changes to the Uniform Commercial Code in the United States. This had been done in all 50 states So it was something that could be done very quietly over a long period of time and did not have to be done at the federal level, didn't draw attention. What they did was to create a new legal construct of a security entitlement. Prior to this, as I said, securities for 400 years were personal property. This concept of a security entitlement severed that. That's its purpose. So what people then have in institutions and uh, pension funds, even sophisticated investors, all they have is an entitlement. It's a claim. It's a contractual claim which is very weak in the event of insolvency. So it's an appearance of ownership. It's sometimes referred to as beneficial ownership, which sounds nice, but what it means is that you receive dividends, you receive a proxy, you are the owner of title, You can, of course, you can buy it and sell it, but you can see in documents that I've found that the legal owner is actually the entity that controls the security with a secured interest. They are the legal owners of the property. So now you have a contractual claim. Next, all of the securities are held in pooled form. So you have no specific identification. It used to be that with paper certificates, they were numbered. You had a specific numbered bond or stock share certificate. So now they're fungible. Fungible bulk, book entry form pooled. Further, we know, and it is absolutely irrefutable from the Fed's own response to a questionnaire from the EU that even segregated accounts, even people or institutions that have been told that their securities are segregated, are in the same pool and entitled to only a pro rata share in the event of an insolvency of the custodian. So again, segregation is just an appearance. People are told that it's an absolute subterfuge. And the shocking thing is that even sophisticated institutional investors do not understand this or they don't want to know it. Further, even if fraud, outright fraud, is committed by the custodian, That does not obviate the ability of the secured creditors to take the securities from these pools ahead of the people who thought they owned them. Then there was, in 2005, a change to the bankruptcy law in the United States creating something called safe harbor again that sounds nice but what safe harbor means is safe harbor for the secured creditors to take the client assets and to make that absolutely certain that even in the event of fraud they will take the client assets so Prior to this change in bankruptcy law, there was something called fraudulent transfer, fraudulent conveyance. And the trustee, the bankruptcy trustee had a duty to claw back any assets that had been fraudulently transferred. So this change was made in 2005. And then with the failure of Lehman Brothers, this was cemented in case law. And we can see the judgment by the bank bankruptcy court related to this what happened there was that JP Morgan was both the custodian for the client assets and the secured creditor that took the client assets which prior to 2005 everything that happened there would have been constructively fraudulent but the bankruptcy judge this is the southern district of New York which is Manhattan found in favor of J.P. Morgan, that J.P. Morgan absolutely was entitled to take the client assets. The only question was whether J.P. Morgan was an entitled person, basically, to take the client assets. This is an important point because it's not all secured creditors that have this power to take the client assets. It is only the very biggest banks that are entitled to take the client assets. So they don't want anyone else elbowing in there to take anything, only they will take them. And in this judgment, the judge asked the question, is JP Morgan a member of the protected class? Used explicitly those words and said, quite obviously as one of the biggest banks in the world, biggest financial institutions, JP Morgan is quite obviously a member of the protected class. To see this in a bankruptcy case law from the court, I think that's pretty strong stuff. It's like that document directly from the Fed provided to the legal certainty group. This is hard to refute. A custodian has the records of who owns what. It's in their books and records, but that's all it is. It is the records. The system has been changed so that the property itself is then transferred up to a higher level and held in pooled form. So you deal with your broker to execute a trade to buy or sell something and you get a representation of an account that shows you what you have in it but the assets are not held even at what you think is your custodian. It's transferred to a higher level in the U S that is the depository trust corp, which holds all securities in the United States in pooled form. So the brokers themselves are low down in the food chain in Europe. There are central security depositories at the national level that give an appearance of a registry of ownership at the national level, but by law under something called the Central Security Depository Regulation, CSDR, which was imposed in 2014. By law, these securities are transferred by a mandatory link to an international central securities depository. So they want cross-border mobility of the collateral to occur. So in Sweden for example, you have a local registry, but then the securities go up to Euroclear Belgium. So they are subject to Belgian law, not Swedish law at that level. And then the collateral is transported to underpin the derivatives complex, which is housed at the central clearing counterparties. The acronym is the C So this is the purpose to take the collateral up to this uh, central clearing counterparty level. And we know from a BIS document that is now over 10 years old, that the systems are in place for the movement of this collateral on a global basis, nearly instantaneously, especially in a crisis, to be swept to meet the collateral demands of the system, the secured creditors. Also associated with this, we have to understand derivatives used to be bilateral. You knew when you entered into a contract who your counterparty was, and you looked to the credit quality of that counterparty. They were on the other side. In the name of reducing risk, they actually increased risk. They created a monolithic risk because they forced central clearing so that the CCP is the counterparty on all derivatives contracts. The central clearing parties are the counterparties. Now what does that mean if the central clearing party itself fails? That means there is no counterparty there to honor the derivative contracts for all manner of things, but especially people that think that they have hedged their downside risk in the collapse. There's no counterparty. And the central clearing parties have been deliberately undercapitalized. So in Europe and the US, there are discussions by the participants themselves about the possibility of the central clearing parties failing. In the last few years, there have been discussions of this. And if you look at DTC itself, which houses all the securities in the US securities complex and is the central clearing party for most derivatives, they have discussion of how they will start over again when the central clearing party collapses and explicitly that they will not put more capital behind it, but they have pre-funded the startup of a new central clearing party when one of the existing ones fails. So it's essentially planned, and the entire capital base of depository trust, so essentially the entire U.S. securities complex, is housed there in all derivatives. The entire capital is $3.5 billion. Individual banks have derivative positions the size of the global GDP. So something will happen to trigger this collapse implosion. I would say the cake is already baked at this time. It's been made to happen because to take interest rates after having kept them at zero for 15 years, which was insane to begin with and did not have to happen, made to happen and then in essentially a year to take that back to over five percent and if you're noticing they're not stopping the rates are continuing up i'll go through what that means for the global financial system, when interest rates were at 5%, if a bond paid $5, to simplify this, let's say it's a perpetuity, which means you don't have to take into account a maturity date. So if it pays $5, it's worth $100. You would pay $100 for that because interest rates are 5%. Now, if interest rates are driven down by the central bank to 1% and the bond still pays $5. Now, 5 is 1% of $500. So the value of the bond goes up five-fold by dropping interest rates like that. And it was even further because they took it to zero. So this is the source of the bubble, the financial bubble that we've experienced, the everything bubble, as some people call it. And the entire financial system is basically a perpetuity. So everything is based on discounting cash flows. So all real estate, the entire stock market is based on discounting back theoretical future cash flows from companies as well as bonds. Now, if you do a round trip on this and you take interest rates back from 1% back to over 5%, which is something like what has happened here, you reverse the entire thing and you have an 80% fall in value of everything everything all commercial real estate the stock market everything now imagine what happens to you if you own these things on leverage if you borrowed to own these things That's the problem. So the entire run up, the entire bubble was artificial and the decline will be something like a decimation where indexes will go to maybe 10% of the peak because a lot of things will just go out of business. And this is what happened with the whole dot com sector when that bubble collapsed. This is what happened in the 1930s. This is what happened to the Nikkei with Japan, all bubbles this way, and when you step back and look at them, it's like a very sharp mountain peak. It goes into like a needle blow-off, and you get a first break, and then a second run for the top that fails, and that's where we are now if you step back and you look at something like the nasdaq index the second top is failing now which is understandable given that bond yields are continuing straight up so when this begins imploding the insolvencies will increase due to the level of debt and there will be an automatic call for more collateral that will be transferred into the derivatives complex in the central clearing counterparties but the central clearing counterparties are themselves likely exposed to the collapse because I say to people that you may think that you've hedged your exposure to a decline here, but you've done it through the derivatives complex. So the risk is in the derivatives complex. It doesn't disappear, doesn't go away. It's all there and this pain will accumulate in the central clearing counterparties and then they will fail. And they're basically telling us they will fail. And when that happens, the people that thought that they had hedged their exposure included the most sophisticated institutions and the pension funds will have no protection and secured
0: i'm going to stop it there good information but pretty technical and um the link is in the chat room and on the telegram channel for anyone that wants to um continue viewing it um i wanted to go back to the video that i was talking about the other day with um um if i can find the spot we left off at um it was Dr. Brigan, and uh, let's see if I can get uh, about the midpoint here. He was talking about what he was experiencing with the um, mental illness and that kind of thing with injections.
2: And he said, you know, these stories of bank robbers by lobotomized people, why they don't have the ability to plan or the energy or the concern very proudly about what they're doing to human beings. Now, what is better for totalitarian mass yeah. than producing docility, mm-hmm. lack of being able to plan anything, That uh, like a rebellion? So to the extent that they anticipated a brain damage, a generalized brain damage reaction, docility is, uh, it's, that's so such a big part of it. Um, one of the reasons perhaps that I'm not exactly like most scientists and physicians is that I got introduced to this whole area. as a college freshman at Harvard For four years without any training, I had the keys to the hospital and led the program. <clears throat> and one of the things I noticed immediately is I got to see a lot of lobotomized patients. It was 1954 to 58 that I was in college. And I got to see shock treatment and insulin coma treatment because I would just walk in and I was recognizable. People thought I'd been given the keys. I just didn't return them one night. and Nobody complained. And what I noticed was very, very apparent to me as a college by now, maybe a sophomore when I'm really, really active. And that is that when the person would be led in, say, to the insulin coma, which is simply giving you an injection of insulin sufficient to deprive your brain of sh- enough sugar to kill you. Mm-hmm. that one of the basic things that, that I could see was that people came in as human beings. Mm-hmm. They were angry, most of them, upset. They didn't want to be in this place. They uh, would certainly be irritable. They might they'd be difficult to handle. And then they'd get knocked out by the insulin. They'd go into seizures. They were literally dying, and then they'd be given sugar, water, or orange juice with extra sugar, and they'd come out of it. And now they were not just docile. They were grateful for having their lives saved. They were completely helpless, docile people. And that was the goal. So I knew from the beginning that all the other things they were saying about biochemical imbalances or improving their mental health (laughs) was all nonsense. This was a total institution, very similar to an extermination camp. Um, And um, they were just having their way with these people, making them more amenable. And then the same story when the psych drugs came in, the big antipsychotic drugs, which came in in the 50s. I got to see some of their effects. Uh, one dose produced somebody similar to somebody in a who'd been abused in a concentration camp. One dose made people docile. And as Naomi mentioned, this occurs through the uh, destruction or at least increasing dysfunctionality in the frontal lobes of the brain. But the brain's also very integrated. The... Um, The production of these widespread hemorrhages and why it sounds like hemorrhages, but certainly thrombosis first to get a hemorrhage um, is very similar to uh, shock treatment, because in shock treatment, the brain is a resistor and then the then the um, electricity goes through the brain all over the brain because it's going through the resistor and Also, the most intense current goes through the electrodes, so you get very serious memory loss because at least one electrode is over the temporal lobe memory centers. But forget the memory centers. and Just think about the heads of resistor. You build up the electricity. It goes through, and you get widespread small hemorrhages in human and animal studies. And so what happens after somebody has shock treatment just setting aside that terrible memory crushing And the person becomes helpless, dependent, needy. The the person loses their spark, loses uh, the highest functions because they also get some of that electricity going right through the frontal lobes. Um, In general, all widespread injury to the brain or specific injury to the frontal lobes produces a hierarchy of losses. Again, mimicking uh, exactly what Naomi's talking about. The first loss is love. That is the first thing, the most sensitive, the highest functioning of the brain. So that a lobotomized patient, an electroshock patient, the first thing that is gonna be missing is the fine tuning of love. This will also happen with most psychiatric drugs. It happens with most neurotoxins. I think it happens with marijuana. I know it does. It happens in alcoholism. The finest tuning goes first. That's the most complex, the most subtle. In a sense, our frontal lobes that fill our heads like no other animal. No other animal has these great big foreheads that we do. The frontal lobes contain our civilization. And in a very, very, um, um I am, I'm, I'm witnessing you crying as I'm talking. That, that that reminds me of a of a story. About I, I had to describe all this in a courtroom on a number of occasions. And this particular occasion, there was a man who had been lobotomized. He was the plaintiff, and he was sitting in the audience. And I went up. I did something you're not supposed to do, but I was so heartbroken to have him listen to all this that I I went up to him uh, during the break and I said, I'm so sorry, you have to sit here and listen to this. Um, I said, it's, uh, uh, you know, I'm surprised you're not crying or something like that. And he looked at me very flatly, just said, I am crying. Oh my God. And then it's... um, it is an, an oh-my-God kind of thing that I've never forgotten. So what's going on here is that um, the civilization of the person, the highest centers of the brain, are being impaired, along with lots of other things that relate to it in the brain. It's not just those frontal lobes. The brain is integrated beyond our knowledge. I mean, you go deep into the brain to something called a basal ganglia, And damaging that area is going to cause Parkinsonism, but it also causes a dementia, a loss of brightness, Parkinson's people. They don't, they don't have their brightness. Their their connectivity is, uh, is impaired. Um, So all of this uh, follows simply from injuring generalized to the brain so that it includes the frontal lobes. The irritability that, that you mentioned, Naomi, that's, that's that's the impulse control that you mentioned and it's one of the highest centers is is our ability not to get irritable and angry with each other that's what you mentioned it's empathy that's caring that's love it's all a package if you what I'm fond of saying that if you uh when you describe the frontal lobes you're saying more about yourself than the frontal lobes because it's everything so what are you picking out? (laughs) Mm What are you picking out? And the lobotomists were picking out how much more uh, docile and controllable a person was. Mm -hmm. And you and I, of course, of our nature, are picking out with sadness the loss of that finest tuning of all. Now, how much these people knew about all of this, um, uh, neurologists and um, neurosurgeons, the people they may have consulted, would not give you these descriptions that Naomi's giving and that I'm giving. Mm-hmm. Um, they they. Uh, I'm fu- after I got through taking on the lobotomists, the psychosurgeons, I came up with a new phrase, which is you don't have to be a brain surgeon to be a brain surgeon. <laughs> you can just be a butcher. And they don't know all of this stuff. So how much of that's done purposely, I don't know. But they are definitely creating the kinds of masses that they want there's no question about that that this is this was this if if this is happening as it seems to be and i'm not sure i don't have uh, as much experience out in the world right now <laughs> some of you are i'm i'm inside writing and being 86 years old and trying to make sure my health and my strength re- stays and we don't go out a lot and uh, and travel a lot right now <laughs> um not to rooftop parties in New York, right? <laughs> no, no, not at all. So let me think if I've sort of covered everything. I want to say that um, uh, Naomi's writing is uh, is incredible. Um, last night Ginger was reading to me from your from your book, Naomi, and it's um, uh, you're in a different class uh, from some of us uh, as a writer, and uh, it's it's really really good work and um, I think I I could stop there for for the moment now and maybe just go to more discussion between us, if that works,
4: or ask me anything
2: specific. Uh, I I, wanted uh, to
4: interject something, Peter. Um, It just so happens, and I don't think this is a coincidence. I don't believe in coincidences anymore. I used to when I was just a lawyer, but it's different now. It just so happens that um, both you and Naomi, you're both Jewish. I'm German. And if we take a closer look at the, at the horrific picture which, is, which has been unfolding for us over the last three years, I, I can't help but um, confirm what both of you are saying. Much of this, if not all of this, reminds us of what happened 80 years ago in the Third Reich. This cannot be a coincidence uh, for three reasons. Um, you, know, you probably know that the biggest donor to the WHO is now not Bill Gates anymore, but it's Germany. Uh, you probably know that the PCR test, as ordered uh, by the WHO, was invented, not the original one, uh, but the one that was used in order to create cases that didn't exist, um, was created by uh, German... Professor, who is a fake professor, who was also a fake doctor, by the name of Drustin, and you probably know that the first mRNA vaccine, so-called vaccines, come from Germany, BioNTech, which I think has now been more or less bought up by Pfizer. Um, I, I, you know, when w- Vera Sharaf reminded me that we must not ignore the parallels between what we're seeing now and what happened then and one of the common denominators is that something is wrong with germany or something is wrong with those parts of the german history that don't seem to have died off to me it appears as though this is a continuation this is not a new start this is a continuation of what we've been seeing what do you think naomi
5: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it's very brave of you to bring that up, given how, um, Mm. you know, uh, what is the word, criminalized discussions (laughs) such as as that has been um, in Germany. Uh, But a a thousand percent, I agree with you. And in fact, I would say that um, everyone should read uh, Racial Hygiene, um, as well as not reread the Nazi Doctors. Racial Hygiene is a book... Um, I think it was written in the 80s, uh, very scholarly, thoroughly uh, sourced, um, looking at the role of medicine and medical organizations and, and doctors in um, being kind of the tip of the spear of, uh, you know, even in advance of 1933, um, even in advance of the formal ascendancy of the National Socialist Party as kind of the majority, um, you know, the doctors were enlisted and, 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 uh, medical organizations were enlisted to cr- advocate a discourse of, you know, life unworthy of life, as um, Dr. Reagan mentioned, useless eaters, and to uh, create a, a narrative in which um, impaired youth and kids were singled out and and basically done away with, you know, long mm-hmm. before there were the f- concentration camps at yeah. the end of the 30s that mo- most people are, are more aware of. Um, But I would also note that what racial hygiene points out is that at the end of the war, uh, World War II, the Nazi doctors didn't mostly get convicted, you know, of course there were Nuremberg trials, but they, they went on to, many of them, to very respected um, roles in post-war Germany, and the author of Racial Hygiene makes the case very persuasively that eugenics, which is what it had been sort of, kind of called very openly um, in Germany in the, you know, late 20s, into the 30s, um, and into the 40s, of course, became genetics. And that the geneticists um, of the post-war period and the the universities and institutions that study genetics, you know, like the kind of genetic focus of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, descends directly from uh from Nazi Germany mm-hmm. and and is kind of a a, a repackaging of, of eugenics. Um, and I guess the other thing I would say is that every day and, and I'm trying to write about this. I appreciate Dr. Breggen's kind words about my writing, but sometimes certain situations are kind of beyond your best efforts as a writer. And I'm really struggling with that as, as I know that writers witnessing, uh, you know, what was in in, 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 Germany also kind of struggled to, mm-hmm. to express what we were seeing. Um, uh, you know, it, it, Canada has a euthanasia program now, an assisted suicide program. And I, I, was watching a clip of a medical official basically advocating for babies to the age of one to be marched to assisted suicide or, well, it's not assisted suicide, it's murder at that point. Um, or, you know, eugenics or, or euthanasia, I suppose, Mm -hmm. um, with, with not even a parent with a, a guardian or a tutor. Right. And also saying, well, minors under 18 have the right to assisted suicide. I mean, just this like death cult and at scale and, and the deaths that we're seeing at scale and looking at Pfizer documents and seeing how Pfizer knew, you know, that this, these injections would murder and sterilize people and they just kept going. The FDA knew and just kept going. As a as a Jew and as a human being, there's really no, there's no way to process what we're seeing in terms of like a collective societal abdication of what we thought was our eternal Western post-World War II, certainty that human life has value and you don't engage in mass murder anymore, that's gone. You know, there's global mass murder. And 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 each time I think I've come to the end of the horrors that I'm seeing, I'm actually now seeing a, a horror on a scale, you know, that out, outdoes the Holocaust. I mean, I just have to say that numerically, we're gonna see millions and millions dying if we haven't already seen millions dying. And I checked Steve Kirsch's numbers, and there are certainly hundreds of thousands in America based on independent sources I looked at whose deaths could be attributed already to the mRNA injection. But, um, you know, by the time this is over, there are going to be greater numbers than the ones, you know, my my own people who who died um, due to intentional annihilation. So I guess all of this is a roundabout way to say anyone who avoids language about the Holocaust is... um, engaging in intellectual negligence
4: to say the least it's exactly what vera sharaf is saying and um i believe i believe that to be absolutely (laughs) true we must not ignore this because if we do ignore it that's making fun of the holocaust or or mitigating it i mean it is so obvious it's just the, the weird thing is that for some strange reason, but maybe it does have to do with personality changes induced by the so-called vaccines, it's only us, the resistance, that can see what's going on. The others can't see it. Even if they're people dropping dead right and left, they can't see it. They, they don't make the, the connection. It's very bizarre. The word that I, kept, uh, that I could think of is uh, zombie mania. This is something that the WHO has on
5: their website, Zombie mania. I, I'm going to have to take a look at that. That is super scary. Yeah. I mean, so much is is falling into place just as I hear Dr. Bregan speak, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been so baffled at how many educated people, educated people I know, like highly, you know, journalists, editors, psychologists who will say the words, don't show me, don't show me that material. And I, I keep thinking, where did your critical faculties go? Where did your, you know, Ivy League training go where we engage with evidence? But if indeed people are losing their ability to engage in nuanced analysis, they may literally be, I mean, I want to ask Dr. Bregan when someone's, you know, prefrontal cortex is impaired or their higher faculties are impaired, do they have trouble with, um, you know, evidence that contradicts a belief system, for example, or do they have trouble processing evidence that challenges um, what happens in their minds when they're confronted with evidence that challenges their belief system, I guess I should say.
2: Well, they get very anxious and then they'll confabulate. They'll make up uh, reasons why they won't think about it or can't think about it. Um, So it's entirely possible that they're operating as brain damaged people from what we're talking about today. I wow. wanted to, uh, there's a couple of different things I wanted to refer to in regard to this. Um, Reiner, I don't know if I ever told you, I came to Germany, I was invited to come to Germany in 1983. Mm-hmm. I actually got to go and see East Germany uh, because the war wasn't down yet. Mm-hmm. Um, to present at the first conference ever in the Third Reich, and I believe it's the only one, on medicine in the Third Reich. And my specialty was something you've touched on. Uh, which is um, the um, psychiatric Holocaust. And on my website, on bregan.com in the science papers, I have, the, I think, the deepest in the English language, analysis of the role of psychiatry in actually bringing about the Holocaust. It's a much more we'll uh, honest analysis than Nazi doctors. Mm-hmm. And one of the major, which was Lifton's book, the Lifton book, <laughs> The, one of the major differences between uh, what I found, and this is before, well before his book, uh, was that the Nazi doctors, no, it was, uh, it was all the doctors. <laughs> it was all the psychiatrists, basically, of course. because the euthanasia murder program was organized out of Berlin, uh, uh, professors checking off euthanasia forms. And then patients, if they weren't being killed in the state hospitals, being shipped off to, to murder centers, uh, Hadamar, Sonnenstein, places people haven't heard of. And they, uh, so the way this plays into some of what we're talking about is that it was, in a sense, very ordinary professionals, to the extent that psychiatrists are ordinary, who... Uh, willingly, eagerly, based on actual years of writing and thinking about it, murdered all their own patients. And so if you can get doctors to murder their own patients for ideological reasons without even the Fuhrer being involved, eventually the Fuhrer actually canceled the program because it's the only thing that he ever got booed about. I think it was in Kafburen. Um, mm-hmm. Where he stopped at a train stop, and the local villagers booed him because they were they were going they were killing their patients up in the hospital, poisoning them, starving them, and then cremating them in the hospital. Um, I was actually given photographs of that when a man who had liberated that hospital heard me talk on on a, a radio back in the seventies. So much information here. I apologize for that, but. Um, Ordinary people will do terrible things. And um, so that shouldn't surprise us too much. I think it was the Norwegians who bragged that, you know, how different they were from the Nazis. And then uh, eventually uh, the Nazis set up a camp in Norway and right away everybody wanted to work for the camp. Um, This is a, a part of human nature. Uh, I don't think we should Hmm. be thinking in terms of like a mass formation or a psychosis. I want to address that for a minute. Everything we're seeing in America and Germany and other places is accounted for by living in a totalitarian regime. Uh, We are being humiliated. We're being threatened. Our leaders are being threatened all the time. The leading physicians are terrified and won't say anything at all. So, but what now I'm thinking about is now combine that with having some sort of a minimal or even major brain damage <laughs> from from the spike protein from both COVID and from the um, injections because the COVID is, is uh, probably doing the same thing to people.
0: Okay, I'm going to stop that one there. Uh, maybe we'll finish it up tomorrow. But... Uh, Another, you know, the the first thing we listened to, the, uh, the great taking, and then uh, this situation with the uh, jabs causing brain damage, it just shows you the uh, attacks that we're experiencing from all fronts and how everywhere you turn we're being set upon by the dogs of the globalists, whether it's climate change these jabs, um, financial situations. And here's an article. Perfectly healthy baby dies two days after receiving routine childhood vaccines. Family of a previously uh, perfectly healthy 15-month-old baby girl who died just two days after receiving routine childhood vaccinations during a wellness check is searching for answers to explain their daughter's sudden death. (laughs) <laughs> Check out Vaxed 2. Melody Rain Pelombi Malmgren, who lived with her family in Greenwood Lake, New York, went into cardiac arrest and died on October 19th after receiving three vaccines, the varicella, DTAP or Diphtheria, tetanus and pertussis, and the HIV or hemophilus influenza type B. The child's parents took her to Herbert Cania Pediatric Group in Warwick, New York, to receive the three shots, which are part of the recommended schedule as established by the U.S. Centers disease, uh, for Disease Control and Prevention, also the COVID death cult. She was perfectly healthy child, said Catherine Palombi, the little girl's mother. I'm in complete shock everything seemed fine the morning before little melody's sudden death her mom waved goodbye after dropping the child off at her grandmother's house only to receive a call a little lot later on from the grandmother explaining that Plumby had her uh, to her that her daughter had was having trouble breathing i was in complete shock palumby told news 12 like what just happened is she choking on something did she get into something that is the first thought because uh, i'm like this child is perfectly healthy childhood vaccination is risky business melody was quickly rushed to saint anthony's hospital by ambulance after her grandmother tried unsuccessfully to perform cpr on the child plomby rushed back home from work only to discover that a police officer was uh, waiting at the door The officer reportedly offered to rush Palombe to the hospital because uh, he knew how serious it was. By the time I got to the hospital, they put me in a room, uh, Palombe recalled, and they just kept saying, we're working on her. They were going over everything from that morning uh, because she'd gotten into something. Um, They think, anyway. I just kept saying she had vaccines. A couple days before this, uh, she had vaccines. Of course, they're not going to, well, that had nothing to do with it. (laughs) Emergency medical technicians uh, and other medical staff spent hours trying to revive Little Melody, but to no avail. They brought me in the room, and I saw her lying there. Tommy said, uh, they said, time of death, 1113. And I could just completely hit the floor. Official uh, records from the hospital show that Melody suffered liver and kidney failure along with cardiac arrest. The actual cause of her sudden death is still under investigation pending an autopsy. According to the Child, uh, Child, Children's Health Defense Senior Research Scientist Carl Jablonowski, Ph.D., little Melody could have just uh, as well received six vaccines that day instead of just the three she got. Even with half the normal amount, Melody's fragile body could not handle it. Dr. Elizabeth Mumper, president and CEO of the Rhymelin Center for Integrative Medicine, told The Defender that Melody's jabs showed elevated enzymes in the liver, heart, or her labs showed elevated enzymes in the liver, heart, and muscle, uh, suggesting catastrophic damage. Her electrolytes were abnormal. Suggesting her uh, body lost the ability to maintain homeostasis, a balance between body chemistry, Mumper said. The, in investigating sudden deaths in babies is crucial to consider all possible causes. In this case, the baby had four vaccines two days prior. Well, actually, I think it was three, but... Uh, sudden death is one of the unavoidable unsafe reactions to vaccines and should be considered in the differential diagnosis of what happened to this beautiful baby analysis of VAERS uh, vaccine adverse event reporting system safety data shows that clustering of sudden infant death syndrome cases in uh, in the days just following vaccinations my heart goes out to the family yeah And this is something that's played out over and over and over again uh, in this country and others. But uh, what's it going to take? How long is it going to be before people finally start to uh, smell the coffee, so to speak? Comments, questions, anybody feel like it, jump on in. But that's just another sad situation. Parents, you know, their life is going along. Everything's fine. They have a new baby. They're happy. And then it starts. The well baby checks. And it gets crazy from there. And, of course, humans breathing harms the environment, according to a UK scientist. And that's the thing. When you've got morons like this in the uk and all around the country you know the, the world for that matter here in the u.s too you know everything we do harms the environment causes global warming or, or climate change or something so we have to get rid of population all this stuff fits into it childhood vaccines is just one more way they slowly but surely incrementally get rid of people New research put together by Dr. Nicholas Cowan, an atmospheric physicist in the UK Center for Ecology and Hydrology in Edinburgh, uh, argues that the gases exhaled by humans while breathing are a major contributing factor to global warming. Don't they realize it's now climate change? Because the globe's not warming, it's cooling, and then it's not cooling, it's warming. So we just standardize on climate change. That way, no matter what happens with the climate, it's a problem. According to Dr. Cowan and his team, the simple act of respiration releases warming gases into the air that attribute to atmospheric heating and boiling oceans. Oh, yeah. I haven't been to the ocean in a while, but the last time I was there, it was not boiling. I was able to get in, swim around, have a good old time. Didn't see any fish floating to the top and that kind of thing. Cooked well done. It's been reported that exhaled human breath can contain the greenhouse gases methane and nitrous oxide, both of which have a much higher global warming potential than carbon dioxide, the study explains. Oh, geez. Where hydrocarbon chains, food food types... Uh, are consumed by humans and turned into CH4 and N2O, or from nitrogen intake. The CH4 is methane. N2O is nitrous oxide. Anyway, uh, the global warming potential is no longer neutral. The human respiration has a net warming effect on the atmosphere. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do now? We would argue ca- caution in the assumption that the emissions uh, that emissions from humans are negligible. <laughs> oh, good grief! Uh, stop breathing, save the world. For their study, the researchers looked at levels of methane and nitrous oxide in the human breath from 104 adult volunteers from the general population of the UK. Each volunteer was instructed to take a deep breath hold it for five seconds, then exhale into a sealable plastic bag. A total of 328 breath samples were collected from the participants, each of whom was recorded based on age, sex, and dietary preference. Upon analysis, all of the breath samples were found to contain nitrous oxide, while only 31% were found to contain methane, the same gas found in cow farts. that the climate cultists are also trying to eliminate. The other 69% of participants did not release methane in their breath were determined to still release the gas in flatus. In other words, their own farts, meaning flatulence. Females above the age of 30 were found to be the most likely to exhale methane in their breath. Oh, because females above 30 never fart, so it's got to go somewhere. (laughs) Though researchers say They are unsure why this is the case. I just told you. Overall, based on the samples, the researchers determined that the proportions of UK greenhouse gas emissions that come from people's breath is 0.05% for methane and 0.1% for nitrous oxide. To be clear about what this means, Dr. Cowen stressed that these two percentages uh, relate to sp- specifically to the two respective gases. The two pet percentages do not cover the totality of U.K. greenhouse gas emissions as a whole. As far as they could tell, there is no link between gases in breath and what people eat, though the researchers made sure to throw in their best, uh, their best, their bias against meat eaters, <laughs> of course, claiming that they fuel the climate crisis to a much higher degree than vegetarians and vegans. The study also looked at greenhouse gas emissions from breath. Uh, the researchers did not provide any kind of estimate as to the person's total emissions or their overall carbon footprint. I love global warming, one commenter wrote. It encourages us to breathe so plants become green good for them well we all knew knew this was bound to happen wrote another i would like to suggest that uh, dr nicholas cohen be the first to put a plastic bag over his head duct tape the bag to his body and make certain there are no gaps and breathe deeply to reduce the population (laughs) oh goodness smart person anyway yeah the insanity continues And how on earth people are putting up with this stuff, believing it, and everything else is just amazing. It just shows the level of stupidity we have reached as a general population. CNN writer suggests forcing carbon passport on travelers to meet carbon footprint target by 2050. Oh, good grief. Study, 70% of Pfizer jab deaths in Japan reported within 10 days of injection. Yeah, that sounds about right. Man sues Verizon as its Idaho cell tower emitted ERF radiation that he claims triggered his heart disease. Hmm. Creative. Harvard President Claudine Gay allowed to keep her job after plagiarism evidence surfaced, even after refusing to condemn calls for genocide against Israel. Good grief. IBM sued for racist CEOs' obviously illegal hiring practices. Whites and Asians need not apply. How <laughs> gold price could hit $15,000 an ounce in three to five years as it enters new bull market, according to Rickards. Oh, good grief. Fully jabbed Piers Morgan catches COVID again. <laughs> Blames the unvaccinated. If I'd had another COVID, I would have caught if I'd had another COVID, I wouldn't have caught the blank thing. Huh. Yeah, typical Piers Morgan. Canadian journalist who pushed for concentration camps for the unvaccinated has, wait for it, died at age 33. Imagine that. Canadian journalist who advocated putting people who refused to get vaccinated against the Wuhan crow coronavirus has died suddenly at the young age of 33 with obituaries being guarded about broadcasting his cause of death of course ian van dale a former reporter and editor for the financial post and a producer of canadian financial news channel bnn bloomberg has passed away at 33 following an unexplained illness with his death reported on social media posts by fellow journalists and his significant other stephanie hughes i haven't been on twitter for a while because my partner ian vandale has been in the hospital since november 18th wrote hughes it's with the heavy heart today that i say he was declared neurologically deceased in other words brain dead (laughs) this week and taken off life support this morning he was 33 years old he will carry on, or we will carry on his memory as the kindest, most loving person we could know. Yeah, so kind and so loving that he advocated that people that hadn't been jabbed be put in concentration camps. <laughs> or worse. Continued Hughes. He also leaves behind the best friends anyone could ever ask for. Hughes has been asked for uh, to comment on whether COVID-19 vaccine caused his death. She has so far refused to answer this question. Vandale advocated for heavy measures against the unvaccinated. He had been notorious uh, for years due to his uh, job as a journalist, as well as his platform on social media, to advocate for incentives to encourage COVID-19 vaccination. One of these incentives is for the implementation of vaccine passports, the termination from employment of those who refuse to take the vaccine, and concentration camps for the most stubborn anti-vaxxers i for one advocate we bring the carrot and the stick incentivize getting the vaccine however we like ice cream lotteries liter- uh, literally whatever i don't care and require vaccination to do uh non-essential things <laughs> want to go to a bar to watch the game passport Vandela tweeted want to go to work <laughs> get the jab while writing and producing for BNN Bloomberg, Vandel was uh, also responsible for segments claiming that the way for Canada's economy to recover from the destructive COVID-19 lockdowns is not through reopening the economy or even through the influx of government cash into the hands of businesses to keep them afloat, but through vaccinations. Canada needs a literal shot in the arm far more than a fiscal one, wrote Vandel in his article entitled Vaccines Not Stimulus will ease Canada's COVID hit. Published on March 3rd, 2021, the article included the uh, testimony of so-called economic experts. We don't need either monetary policy or fiscal policy. We need faster vaccine rollouts, claimed Francis Donald, chief economist and head of macro strategy at Manalife Investment Management who added that the lack of widespread vaccination programs was what was keeping Canada's economy from properly reopening and back on a growth path. Uh, Global health authorities still consider the COVID-19 vaccines as safe and effective, even though they've killed over 20 million people worldwide and maimed hundreds of millions more and claims that side effects are supposedly very rare. Oh, yeah. Fortunately, yeah, that's why they have uh, things on buses now saying uh, childhood heart attacks are completely normal. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately for COVID 19 vaccine mandate critics, many other Canadians felt victimized by the repressive atmosphere that pervaded the country in 2020 and 2021. And that's really pretty much the end of it. Um,. Of course, uh, Epic Times has a little video here. Researchers create aerosolized mRNA COVID vaccine, but we're not going to have time to play it. So maybe tomorrow as well, we'll see. But uh, yeah, they're doing everything they can. And by golly, if you don't want to take it, we're going to find a way that you don't have a choice. We'll just put it in the air and you got to breathe. Or we'll put it in food. You got to eat. God help us. It's getting crazier and crazier and crazier every step of the way but uh, we're down to about four minutes or so so if anybody has anything they want to say feel free to jump in uh comments are welcome anybody nope okay well then i'm going to play a little christmas message from klaus santa Claus.
6: Ho, 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 global citizens. This is Santa Claus. I am checking my list to see who is being naughty or nice according to ESG. The worst punishment will be for the climate change deniers. If you are naughty, do not worry. We will not put a lump of coal in your stocking. Coal is made of carbon, and carbon is verboten by ESG. So we will just take your stocking and your other gifts. You will get nothing and be happy. Another tradition is the leaving of cookies and milk for Santa. These cookies must be 100% vegan and the milk must be soy milk. Under ESG, there will be no more cow milk and of course no more meat. You may also leave for Santa cookies made with the cricket flour and a glass of cockroach milk. But even I will not eat this. You will eat this. Maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but we still have plenty of time to implement Agenda 2030. So now is the opportunity for giving the hugs, exchanging the gifts and eating the ham. Make the most of your unsustainable freedom while you still got it. We at the World Economic Forum wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New World Order. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen. Good luck!
1: hope
0: you enjoyed that. Oh, and there's more, but uh I don't know if I can find them here do, 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 do that one I just played Here is the other one hmm.
5: You heard Clousey McSchwab's first two records
7: Vaccine back, spec back, all night
4: You know nothing and be happy But this one is going to make your modified mRNA tingle Time Lies presents Greatest Schwab's Volume 15 a new world order in music.
7: One, two, three, four, five. Also unvaccinated are still alive. A little bit of Pfizer in my arm. A little bit of BioNTech does no harm. A little Johnson Johnson does the trick. A little AstraZeneca so you don't get sick. It's booster star number five. Let's talk about Vex, baby Let's talk about Doc Fauci Let's talk about all the yet and Counter-side effects, maybe Let's talk about Vex Let's talk about Vex a little, a little, a little. Come and take the seventh shot The seven shot This a little luck you get my, 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 my Oh! My, 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 my. You won't have to be pitched. With CBDC, you'll have all you need The central currency Be just take your extra belts and your Cash! And you can walk five hundred steps But not a single step more Until the curfew activates And robot cops stand at your door just a small town boy drinking, genetically more that fights all boy. This ensures he doesn't
0: co create. Do- yeah, we're going to stop it there because we are out of time. Appreciate everybody being here. And uh, we will be back tomorrow, same bat time, same bat channel. And uh, until then, take care of your bodies because the only place you have to live. And uh, spend some time with the ones you love. You never know when they won't be there anymore. Take care, God bless, and we'll see you soon.